This is Dismantling Dissonance, a podcast for performers and teachers who are disrupting the status quo in 21st century musicianship. Over the course of each episode, we will encounter ideas that will challenge our current way of thinking. I invite you to listen to these conversations and see how the topics explored will provide solutions to issues you are currently experiencing in your own career. We will not be bound by genre, instrument, or dogma. You may not agree with everything that is shared, but it will make you think. By understanding others' perspectives and practices, we can all have more freedom and fulfillment no matter where we are in the music industry. Let's dive in. All right, I get to sit down with Ben Plotnick today. Ben is a fiddler and double stop extraordinaire um, and currently based out of Nashville. And I'm just, I'm really excited to get to pick his brain for a while. So thanks for doing this, Ben. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, So whenever you meet new people, what is kind of your elevator speech or like a a short summary that you give people about what it is that you do? Ooh, that's a good question. It has to be like a really long elevator. Um, (laughs) We're going all the way to the top floor. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, Well, I, I mean, I play, I play the fiddle for a living. Um, in in super short form i i kind of i play with a couple of acts that tour um on a on a quasi full-time basis and then i yeah have sort of a, a piecemeal mosaic of recording sessions and freelance gigs and freelance lessons and uh teaching at camps and workshops and and you know, all the other 5 million things that being a musician entails these days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And sort of fill up my, my time peripherally with that. Um, yeah. And within generally speaking, the world somewhere in the folk Americana, uh, bluegrass Celtic genres of music, but oftentimes further out than that. Mm-hmm. Has the elevator gotten there yet? I don't know. Um. <laughs> I don't know. I think we have a couple more floors to go. <laughs> I feel like you're describing a lot of people's careers right now and just like not really settling in in one specific thing. Do you ever feel like like certain facets of that ebb and flow and like what kind of trends have you have you noticed for yourself in terms of like if you're getting really burnt out on one do you kind of pivot more into something else or what does that look like for you what has that looked like for you well i know that i know that for a lot of people i feel like um i'm hearing a lot of i mean you know the last couple years have been a lot of people talking about how they're burnt out on touring and then people i think like didn't really realize how burnt out on touring they were until uh, until they had a couple of years to sort of stay, stay at home. Um, I don't necessarily feel that. And maybe it's because the acts that I've been touring with have been pretty, uh, pretty part-time, you know, it, it, um, I've been kind of chomping at the bit to get back out and playing more, uh, in terms of performing. I know that for me, I got, I would say not burnt out, but I was a lot busier doing kind of string session work and stuff. So like, arranging strings for people's records and mm-hmm. recording it all usually from my house and uh 
you know, recording four layers on top of itself and, and then switching instruments and doing it all over again and, and doing that, um, which actually I really love to do, but that I would say for me has slowed down to a, almost a total stop this, this, uh, last few months. And I think looking at the world right now that I'm in, it is, is I think pretty much everybody is out trying to make up for lost time on tour right now. So, um, yeah, that's been definitely, uh, ebbing, ebbing or fl- I don't, I don't know if I know what ebbing means. I think ebbing is like where it decreases. Gotcha. Yeah. So perfect. That is what I'm yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, are you noticing as you're, as you're playing more and you're getting out more this year performance wise, um, have you noticed like changes in terms of the audience? Uh, I mean, I, I have, uh, granted the, the group I play with the most is still, um, based sort of all over North America. So we've played a lot in Canada this year. And I know that the area that we just devoted our month of July to, which is the province of Ontario, was, uh, opened up to full capacity a lot more recently than I was used to in Nashville, you know, and I think, um, uh, we, managed to get out to some, you know, four or five of these really big festivals. And and it just, it felt like people were just so excited to be at a thing altogether. And so, um, yeah, just so enthusiastic about, about that. And it's always nice to see. I know that, yeah, people have been, have been saying mixed things about crowds since COVID. And I think that it can depend on the situation, but, uh, this last month, at least for, for me, it was really great, and it was very encouraging. Yeah, to, to know that people still like to hear live music. You know? Yeah, I think I think people, I think people consume a lot of art from the comfort of their home, and I, I think that that totally has a place and and all of that. But I, I don't think performers or audience members really appreciated the kind of like I don't know if magic is the right word. I I think it can be pretty magical, but like that kind of like almost effervescent quality of being live in that space with somebody, I don't think people really understood it until that wasn't an option anymore. And then when they got to go back to it, it like like I went to Punch Brothers played a show up in St. Paul and I like <laughs> I was like sobbing through parts of it because I was just so happy to be there. And that was my first live concert in in a really long time where it, it really felt like like we were just there and it was normal. Um and like so great. yeah. And like what a what a great first concert to go to. That um, bad. Yeah. Um yeah. but but Chris said at one point in that show, he was like, you know, we we feel like in a way we haven't been able to go to church for the last couple of years. Like this is our church. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that, that really captured for me anyway, like that, that feeling that I feel as both like a, a musician and, and an audience member. Um, and I don't know, it just, it feels more, more sacred in a way. Totally. Yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think that, um, people i mean at least i'm hopeful that that 
people will really, yeah, will feel that a little more consciously, you know, and now that just now that it won't be taken for granted, at least for a little while, like it feels like, um, it feels like these events are going to mean a lot to people. And, uh, yeah, sometimes, you know, there's always times, or at least there were a lot of times before where it's just, you're not sure if that, you know, if this is just us trying to go through the motions for something that people don't really need, mm-hmm. it's nice to sort of have, have that encouragement and just, just like have that reminder that this is, this is an essential service and it's great to like get back out and, and see it in person and um, also, you know, perform it. It's, it's definitely what I love to do. And Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so with, um, with the albums that you, that you released in, in 2021, um, did any of that material happen like within 2020? And did you notice like any changes for yourself artistically as you were writing that, that material? Yeah, totally. Actually, both the records that I, I put out two records this year, and both of them were pretty, uh, were pretty strongly impacted by the change and everything. Uh, I made a duo record with myself and a banjo player named Frank Evans, who, uh, <laughs> when we started talking about making the record, he lived in another country. He lived in Canada still. And as it happens, he was just, he just started to discuss moving to Nashville, which he did in 2020. And of course, time was a big problem. His band, the Slowcan Ramblers, were super busy. My band, the Fretless, were super busy. It was going to be hard to find time to do this, but we'd talked about it for, you know, we've talked about making a record together for maybe five years. And, um, and so we were really hoping that it could work. And then, of course, he moved here and had nothing on his schedule and I had nothing on my schedule. So, uh, creatively, we were able to do, you know, like a real, a real hyper-focused session uh, recording in his house over just days and days and days and days, uh, as opposed to what we thought, which is that we would sort of binge and go into a studio for for a couple of days and just get it done quickly, whereas we did the opposite and, and just focused and got way inside our own heads and uh, overthought every aspect of it and took, like, way too many takes and... and um, <laughs> Yeah, like hundreds of each, which I know I, you know, I started talking to some folks and I gather that's not that unusual for, 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 you know, the Punch Brothers and folks like that. So mm-hmm. I was encouraged that, that we're not, we didn't do something totally insane, but we felt a little crazy by the end. But it was very, very, you know, in the concept of like COVID records, it was very, very COVID record. Yeah. Um, um because it was just so, yeah, so concentrated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then the other, I mean, the other record that I had made, we had sort of almost finished uh, what was going to be a part of a record. And then we sort of ended up adding bits and pieces to it from afar uh, and adding some some folks to it remotely that made it full. So that's the, the band I play in called The Fretless, who put out their, our record, which is a vocal collaboration album. We're an instrumental band. So we did have a lot of the vocalists sort of 
do the stuff remotely, which, you know, was, was obviously different than we had planned. We thought we'd, um, get them all in one place or we thought we'd fly to everyone or figure it out. But, uh, in the end we, yeah, we were really proud of it and we, and we sort of finished off what we had and, and it could have been, it could have been longer. We had some other kind of collaborations in the works, but we ended up just putting out what we had because, uh, just we really wanted to because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we didn't want to sit on it anymore. But yeah, uh, in both cases, I mean, I'm pretty happy with how they turned out. Uh, it, but yeah, they were both like, they were both sort of slated to be very different, very different types of projects. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I guess that's the way. <laughs> For me so far, when I, whenever I've done recordings and maybe it's totally different for you, but like if I ever go in and I just do take after take after take after take, usually the takes that I like the best are within the first five takes. Mm. (laughs) And that's usually what ends up getting put out there. (laughs) You know, I, I, yeah, I (laughs) totally heard, heard bands that like won't do more than three or four because Mm -hmm. just start to think it gets worse. You know, we, um, I think we used we used some of our some of our hundredth takes and we probably used some of our third takes and the of course it makes the editing listening back <laughs> process a little bit of a uh chore is, is a polite term, nightmare. Uh huh. But um yeah, it just it's a funny thing because it's like if you put two uh perfectionists in a room without a producer and and kind of unlimited time like without a producer or a clock you know mm-hmm. it was it was interesting for us because i know neither of us has ever done that before and usually there's enough people around to reassure you that hey i don't know that take number 87 is any different than take number 4 mm-hmm. you know but for us we just would you know we'd play it so many times and we'd still be like uh still just <laughs> hoping it will be a little better <laughs> And right. Somehow I'm not Chris Thiele yet. You know, just like, um, it's a mystery. I don't know why it hasn't happened yet. Probably just more takes. I think yeah. The, that's always the answer. That's the only thing <laughs> as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, kind of taking a little bit of, of a left turn. Um, I, I'd really like to just for my own selfish reasons, I want to hear more about like what kind of fueled the whole like a double stop explosion that happened with with the book and and everything that you really you really you released that earlier this year right yes okay that's true. yeah so what was like the the impetus for for that and what did that whole thing look like for you as a project yeah um well i think the main impetus is just that i was practicing that type of playing a lot myself. And I think that, um, that the playing double stops in the fiddle is, is a real kind of interest point for me. I really like the approach of trying to play the instrument in a little bit more of kind of a chordal way. Um, I love how that kind of blends in, in band settings. And I love, uh, the interest that you can kind of create by moving two lines in different ways 
rather than just playing a single line melody, I think it, it can um, create kind of a thickness that I really like. Um, and I, you know, so, so it had been, it had been something that I was working a lot on myself. And as I was working through this stuff and, you know, occasionally, you know, posting clips of myself practicing or something, I actually had a friend who, who said offhandedly as what I think was probably a joke, um, oh, you should make a double stop or make a study book of all this so that I never have to teach my students Josephine Trot again, which for classical players is like the, it's like, yeah. Oh, all my students are getting like horrible flashbacks if they're listening to this. Oh, totally. (laughs) I mean, my mom is a violin teacher and Mm -hmm. and I I remember vividly playing that as a kid and um, not loving it. No. Of course. And and then of course like you know months down the line I actually thought about what she'd said and I thought hey you know that's not it's not the worst idea all I, you know all it would take is to write this stuff down mm-hmm. because um yeah because I've been devoting a lot of my life lately to kind of transcribing pedal steel solos and transcribing weird guitar parts that move in different directions and and I've been doing a lot of string writing which like requires sort of the same approach in terms of having multiple lines interact. And so, I mean, it kind of, for me, was sort of a natural, a natural move in that direction. Um, because those are all things that I'm such a fan of within this sort of fiddle context. And I mean, and, and I suppose I should probably mention I played for many years when I lived in Toronto, I I played for many years, uh, in a, total passion project for fun band called the double cuts, which was like a 10 piece Western swing band. And we had a weekly gig. Oh, that's so cool. For quite literally, we would do it for $10 each. And the like dance community got a hold of the gig and they would come and they would come and dance. And, And it was like, it was just an immense amount of fun. Eventually, you know, I think myself and the other fiddle player came to a point where we realized that we were, getting together multiple times a week to write our parts for this band that was literally paying us $10 a week. And I think that um, something like that is an opportunity that I'll, I'll, you know, cherish having forever, but it's hard to, it's hard to devote that much time to something that is just completely for the love of music (laughs) and, you know, nothing else. But, um, but we had a lot of experience writing, you know, writing twin fiddle Western swing parts together, which, is sort of the concept of this is that a lot of it is sort of the kind of thing that we would have tried to write uh, and play separately. And then, yeah, just in trying to navigate the parameters of, I just did did a little like hand motion and realized that that translates pretty well on podcasts. (laughs) Uh Uh, Yeah. I don't know. But, but yeah, so I just sort of compiled a bunch of these, a bunch of these, uh, melody slash solo parts that I'd been working on. And yeah, like you say, I put it out in a book earlier this year and, and uh, there's some fiddle players playing them, I think, and agonizing over them and uh-huh. swearing at me under their breath. Uh, I may have done that once or twice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I just I tried to make it really hard. Um, and you succeeded. I thank you. <laughs> yep. Um, sorry. <laughs> no, no apologies. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's cruel. Uh, it's been really good for, but, for me. 
I'm, I'm really glad. Yeah. I'm yeah. Encouraged to hear that someone has it. You, know, <laughs> you put a thing out and then just sort of hope the book's in the world somewhere. But oh yeah, no, it's <laughs> that PDF has gotten a lot of love oh, <laughs> the last God. several months, um, and a little <laughs> bit of hate, but mostly love. Um, so with, and this is like super super like nerdy and maybe it won't translate well on podcast land so sorry in advance but i'm gonna ask it anyways so with your like with your approach to your playing and your technique and all of that i know some people and like i i studied viola like all through my masters and whatever and most of my teachers would like look at the left hand as like and look at the thumb as like kind of a pivoting point and like having the thumb be movable and then like i um i had a lesson with with kimber um ludiker earlier this summer and she was like nope stop that (laughs) don't do that anymore and she like she like even came up and like held my thumb in place because i had been like pivoting my thumb for years and she was and from her perspective and i totally get where she's coming from um she's like figure out how to pivot in other parts of your hand and like keep the thumb quieter so that you have more like it's more economical it in your hand so it and it kind of sounds like you're of another school of thought what is Hmm. what is that kind of thumb positioning and pivoting or lack of pivoting look like for you when you say pivoting, do you mean like when she moves into other positions, she leaves? No, 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 no. Like, okay. like just within like different combinations. Like sometimes if I'm doing like, like a two, four combination between like my G and D strings, I'll like, cause I swing and then like kind of moving the thumb a little bit to support right. the pinky more. And that's, that's like mostly my like viola professors like coming into play there because right. they were they were a lot of them were big advocates of of moving the thumb to support the pinky more. Right. I see. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I I have um I was brought up with that school as well, and like I think that I tend to have a bit of a shifting thumb at points. Mm-hmm. Um. Ah, uh, I would say though that said that that in general like economy of motion and not having that be massive is, is important. And I think that like, if I was going to do a little bit of that, it would be like just sort of momentary shifts and, and kind of as little as possible. Yeah. Um, in a lot of the situations, and I know that it's pretty calm, like it's, it's, it's um, modestly common knowledge, at least in the classical world that, that if you, stretch down you're stretching less than if you stretch up mm-hmm. because you're um you're yeah just because the mechanics of your hand um which is something i've been trying to think about a lot more consciously these days uh i have very small hands mm-hmm. and a five-string fiddle and like playing up high on the c-string and stuff and when i have to stretch back i've just been sort of navigating that these days and um i think I suppose, I mean, I, I can totally see what Kimber's getting at and trying to, trying to stay, um, you know, and, and with somebody who's that good at playing the fiddle, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine that there's anything 
that like you know it's hard to it's hard to call into question anything about that yeah well and that's one of the first things that i've that i noticed about her playing was like she was getting all these crazy combinations but like her left hand is just like little pistons just going and just like you don't really see a lot of motion in her hand at all um and that's just been like (laughs) i like my brain has just been like circling around that that thought for honestly weeks at this point (laughs) that's interesting um yeah I haven't like I haven't given a lot of conscious attention to that left thumb as I'm mm-hmm. doing this. Um, though I do think for the most part, yeah, like I, I am, I, I I remember also playing a lot of viola growing up, and I, I do remember doing doing that in order to sort of support, yeah, that like you say the pinky in particular. But um, I guess it's just all those motions are very kind of on the micro side. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that Kimber does that I think probably is the most important part of doing it either way is to not have any kind of tension or clamping in the yeah. arm, which is is the only thing that I, you know, I, when I do have students, which, you know, I don't teach a lot these days, but uh, I've definitely, like, been pretty strong on the advocate of just being able to move it around whether you want to do that or not i don't know but i find that a lot of times if people get focused on keeping the thumb in one place um that it can it can increase the tension you know in a lot of parts of the hand and um in some cases all the way up through the arm too which Mm -hmm. is you know one thing that that like i say uh Obviously, as Kimber would demonstrate, it, it, it's certainly possible. You know, it's not like it, um, not like those two things actually rule each other out. But, um, yeah, it's hard in, in in you know the mechanics of stretching that much can feel far and it can feel uh, you know painful. And I know, like my my father struggled a lot with tendonitis in his years of playing the violin and. Um, you know, I think, I think that at least half the struggle for me with doing this stuff has been trying to do it and just get to playing thirds in a position where it's as, uh, passive as it is to play a single note, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of like actual muscle activity. Yeah. Just easy to say. And it's very hard to do. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I never thought of of double stops as like wanting them to be to be passive, but I think that that's a really good way to kind of reframe it because I think like when when like those different combinations first kind of get thrown in, um, I don't know. It it feels like almost not not overwhelming but it just kind of feels like like your hand is not your own in some ways and just like (laughs) getting it to just do the thing um like you said to the point where it feels pretty passive is like the ideal totally yeah i mean yeah yeah it um yeah it feels counterintuitive and, and we like uh 
it's funny to work on something a lot of times in order to make it not work. Like, <laughs> so, which is obviously like, I mean, this is a very general kind of violin and music and just like general trade skills thing is that, is that I feel like, um, we work at things for so many hours to try to like get it to be, uh, to a place where our practicing is more kind of observational, mm-hmm. you know? And I know that's a, that's, that's a thing that I stuck with a lot with, uh, teachers I've had and things that like, it's definitely what I try to do when I'm practicing. It's just like, it's, it's really looking at this and saying, okay, so what am I doing here? Am I like, am I using this muscle in my, in my hand to, produce this like totally insane thing that I'm trying to like leap up for. Uh, and then just trying to trying to just check on, on what I'm doing in more of a, more of a kind of observing way and be like, am I doing this? And then, okay, so what, what do I do about that? If I am rather than kind of like a, I'm going to try really hard to do nothing because the trying really hard part of it can kind of immediately flip a switch and make you kind of, tense and mm-hmm. um yeah anyway i mean that's that's sort of what i've been you know trying to get around i know that's like uh that's i mean that's not new in terms of that's like not a that's not only double stops or anything but. no but um again taking another left turn um your your wife is a cellist right yeah okay do you guys um do you guys ever play together I I just and again this is like my own like <laughs> curiosity um especially when when spouses are both musicians cuz my my husband's a pianist and like we've kind of decided that it's better for our relationship if we don't <laughs> play together a lot cuz we just we butt heads a lot musically I mean it's a yeah it's a, that's a journey for us it's funny <laughs> uh so, I mean, first of all, we have been a band kind of unofficially. I'm not, I mean, very officially at times. Mm-hmm. So our band, All Over the Crow, has taken a, um, we haven't actually taken a hiatus. Uh, we just played a show yesterday and we were trying to explain this. We just sort of, we just had a lot of other things going on. So mm-hmm. we always formed this band with the thought that we would do it occasionally and have, um, yeah, and, and try to have it be fun. Yeah. And knowing that, you know, and then, of course, when we did that, we put a lot into our first album, and um, making an album is uh, emotional and can be fun and can be uh, really difficult and, you know, has all those things. And so all of the emotions that go along with that were definitely present and then of course once we have the album well we want people to hear it so we started touring more and playing shows and we sort of it sort of got uh got away from us a little just in the sense that we were quite busy with the project for a little while in the year of the release now uh i i know that probably married couples went one of two directions over you know the, over the last couple of years mm-hmm. of like either <laughs> now let's just play music together and we sort of went the went the direction of trying to have the times that we interact be like something so far from what is our livelihood that we, um, we didn't end up playing together much. 
Mm-hmm. We we do kind of work together in the sense that we do a lot of recording projects together in in like because I play the violin and the viola and she plays the cello and I do a lot of string arranging. You know, if somebody wants strings on their record, we can kind of do it all in one house. Mm-hmm. And I'll you know literally just pass her the sheet music and I, I think like we've done a lot of that type of thing together, which is. Uh, rewarding in itself and and can be very creative and is certainly uh fun and like plays on both the skill sets that we have but it's not necessarily like a real creative project that we're invested in mm-hmm. um and i think like we always we always tried to have it be a part of what we did mm-hmm. playing together uh at this current moment it is a very very small part of what we do we don't have a lot of gigs or tours or shows or anything planned uh we're sort of scheming out the recording of another record which uh is too soon for a timeline yeah but uh yeah so i mean we don't we don't you know we don't rule it out Mm -hmm. uh it's a it's a journey for us too like it there's some people who who have like a band or that's a duo with their spouse and that's what they do mm-hmm. and they tour it and they do it all the time. And I just can't quite understand how that's possible. Nope. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'm with you. I don't, I don't see how that works. And like for, for my husband and myself, like he's purely classical. Like he, he'll play Shostakovich and Scriabin all day, every day. And he'll be very, very happy with that. And that's not what musically interests me anymore. (laughs) Like I, I even told him I have this little plan that I'm cooking up for next summer where I just like want to take four to six weeks and road trip up and down the East coast um, and just go to a bunch of festivals and stuff that I've never been able to make make it happen logistically and um and he looked at me and i said don't worry you're not invited i know that that would make you miserable (laughs) and he said oh good i mean (laughs) he was like i don't know what i'm gonna do for four to six weeks but like i'm glad i'm not invited (laughs) so that's fine i that's fun to me I know it's it sounds great to me. Everybody else that I've told, they're like, "Oh, that's so cool! I want to join you for X Y Z leg of it." Right. So I'll yeah, I'll it's have like other people. Have company at least. That's oh yeah, oh yeah, I mean, yeah. I think yeah. I feel uh, I feel, you know I, I love having independent projects of one another, and uh, we both do that a lot and she's got a lot going on um and so that's great and yeah i know for us we always wanted to keep it that way and are gonna have to you know move into the next recording project uh with with some new strategies in mind for how to how to remember that music is fun right yeah (laughs) yeah um no that can get really sticky sometimes um are there any like are there any types of projects that you haven't done yet either like with a specific group or like specific instrumentation or like 
anything performance project wise that you're like, that would be really cool to make it happen. Yeah. We, um, uh, over 2020, the year that wasn't, we had the fretless, the band I had, had three shows on the books that were going to be with symphony orchestras. Oh, it's like playing these kind of, you know, rearranged versions of, of, of our tunes of our music, um, which I had spent the last kind of year or so laboring myself through, um, arranging, which I was really excited about, you know, and it, it was something that brought me a lot of joy, um, but also a lot of like pulling my hair out and stuff, you know, and arranging for like a 90 some odd person orchestra. And, and we, we were like the first concert was, uh, April 5th. It was supposed to be. So it was like, you know, it was a couple weeks after the, that was maybe the one that we took the hardest because of course it was such a, it had had this huge buildup and it was, you were really, we were really excited about it and it's Mm -hmm. something that we'd never done. And, uh, as of yet, we don't have those rescheduled. I know that we will at some point. It's a thing that I'm kind of waiting on, on, on bated breath. I think that that's going to be really fun. Uh, yeah, I'm hoping to like, as a result, I, I kind of, am hoping that like, that's not the only orchestral writing and stuff that I get into in terms of writing for big, like wind ensembles and things like that. It's mm-hmm. an interest I've had for sure. Um, and you know we the the fretless as a as a kind of totally revamped string quartet it's hard to kind of it's hard to you know approach a classical group with our music already written out and say play this because in particular the percussive stuff is like a it's like another instrument almost so Mm -hmm. but it is you know now that we will have these kind of versions of the of the music we will be able to kind of, in theory, you know, be the be the quartet and stand in front of the orchestra and do all of that and not rely on, like, a symphony orchestra to kind of keep the groove for us, you know, in this way that we've kind of developed it. Like, that seems unlikely, but... Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, I like to think that we kind of Im- imagine these arrangements that play to the strengths of a symphony, and, um, yeah, I think it could be really cool. Um yeah (laughs) that that would be so cool i just i i have a question with like working with a symphony orchestra and writing those parts out like i've i've kind of noticed whenever whenever there seems to be and it even happens with like like the copeland hoedown and stuff it just like it can sound really gimmicky and really fake And so, like, how do you, how do you, like, go about addressing stylistic stuff and writing things in such a way where, like, it doesn't sound gimmicky and it sounds more, more authentic? Right. Well, I mean, I I guess I should first of all say that uh, these particular arrangements are, because I finished them, but I have not yet, you know, the, the symphony was in is in Canada and I haven't heard, I didn't hear them do any practicing or anything of the stuff. So Mm -hmm. uh, my impression of how it will work is that I am hoping to avoid some of those 
pitfalls of which you speak because I, you know, I do, I am a little scarred by like my, my symphony father, uh, who is, you know, he's the great violinist. Uh, I remember him practicing some like orange blossom special or something for a gig when Natalie master was coming to town or something or somebody. And I remember thinking the whole second violin section is going to do this giant double shuffle. And, and like he, I mean, of course he has, a lot of skill sets, but you mm-hmm. can't just read that off a page and, you know, it's just not. So, uh, I sort of tried to approach things, uh, with the way that the orchestra's really like honing in on the, you know, if, if our band, our string quartet formula, which it's not always this, of course, but if it was, that we have kind of a bass and percussion in the bottom, we have a melody, and then we have two inner voices playing some kind of idea. Uh, What I ended up flushing out a lot of is the inner voice stuff. Mm -hmm. So ideally what the orchestra is playing is a little more melodic and a little less uh, based on actually like having these melodies strung out through entire sections that I mean, or you know, and just just introducing space, even like having parts, little little chunks of the melodies that are important and bringing those out, rather than having like the violins, the first violins, and, the, and you know, play a fiddle tune in unison, because that is that's a lot to ask of, of a first violin section who doesn't play fiddle music to try to play that in any kind of way. And you know, and I, I was thinking about the show in that like they're probably playing it in unison with one of us who are fiddle players. So mm-hmm. it, it's just in terms of blending the sound there. I, it, um, I put a lot of thought into sort of how that might work. Um, and yeah, I, um, you know, the, the, a lot of the melody parts are, are in flutes to the oboes or other instruments. And then a lot of like the accentuating kind of harmony, pad lines and stuff are in the violins and you know so i i um i like to hope that when we do it it'll maybe avoid some of that um uh and get into some of the like you know our band does a lot of because we do a lot of string writing in 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 a totally different way we get really into like you know voicing out kind of our these really like crunchy dissonant chords that I'm hopeful would be really cool translated to the full orchestra. So yeah, this is a lot of concepts, uh, <laughs> uh, and I can't, yeah, I can't wait for this to happen. Uh, I, I wish it was in the calendar right now, but <laughs> it'll get there. It it will it will for <laughs> sure. I mean, like I I look at stuff like um like the chop notation project that Casey did, um, and I don't know I. I really appreciate like all the detail that he and his his partner for that project that they went to to like figure out a way to notate everything. Totally. And but at the same time, I like <laughs> I don't know, it feels like sacrilegious in a way to like <laughs> try and like notate all of that. And uh just and maybe it's not necessarily for like chopping specifically but just like like all the style nuances i don't i don't know if like western notation will have the vocabulary to encapsulate all of that you know what i mean yeah i don't think it will i don't think it like the the way that 
um, like if you look at a fiddle tune as like a passage of eighth notes or whatever, just like a string of notes, I can't with the amount in a fiddle tune in like a traditional way, the amount of fluctuation in terms of volume within that is like, I just don't really know that there's a, like, cause you can't write like piano, mezzo, piano, piano, mezzo, forte. You can't like write that on every note and you can't, the inflections and stuff is, is really difficult to write. Right. Like, you know, like with old time and like the little, the like yeah. little scoopies with the old time, you know what I'm talking oh, about, totally. right? And I, I've yeah. Right like, yeah, what are you going to do? Like throw a bunch of hairpins on every single mm-hmm. note and like, yeah. do like different gradients of, of like hairpins. No, that, yeah. that would be so visually overwhelming. And the like um, rocking stuff. It's like, there's sort of these like kind of partial notes. And I think there's so much it, you know, and I know that, um, I know that people always talk about music as a language and stuff. And I know that like classical music is, is certainly a language that can be read. Um, and I, yeah, I just sort of feel like these musical styles is like, if you try to read a language, it's like, you're trying to read something you've never heard, you know, mm-hmm. these words and try to sound them out without ever hearing someone say them. It's just like, you can never really know that the pronunciation is going to be right. So I think right. that with, you know, it, it, uh, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it it'd be interesting to see if someone tries to take it a little further. I know Casey's chopping thing certainly does in that in that percussive universe. Uh I'll be interested to see like because I was thinking about that too and that stuff specifically it's like, you know, I have two people in the band I play in who basically all they do is not uh, a lot, a lot of what they do is chop. Aside from Casey Dreesen, I can't think of a band that has more chopping in it than the one I'm in. Mm-hmm. And because we just don't, you know, cello and fiddle is our rhythm section. So that is, you know, that is where that comes from in terms of doing it that often. But they both looked at Casey's project and were like, this is cool. I can't, you know. And it, um, in terms of, having it be a thing that people can actually functionally read. Mm-hmm. It's like, maybe that'll be a thing at some point, you know, there's certainly things that he did 15 years ago that became functional things, you know? And so maybe, maybe that'll, that the like next generation will, will come up knowing that this exists and they'll kind of like, you know, be 14 and improvising through fiddle tunes. And then they'll like have that book and, start you know maybe if they start young enough and and it's a part of their upbringing or whatever and i yeah i don't know it's hard yeah. to say what will happen with notation of tunes and everything else in the future but it's well, hard for me to imagine yeah i think it also kind of calls into question um like why people even feel a need to have stuff like that notated and like is that like because there's a part of like a general cultural mindset that like if you can notate it and if you're doing it like within like a, a more like classical framework classical in quotations but if if you're doing it from more of that framework that it like like validates it in a different way and right. like 
I I don't know. I I wonder a lot about that too. And like huh. if that is like like what's the point of doing that? Totally. Like why not just learn that music in the way that it's been passed down for centuries and the way totally. that it's worked and functioned. <laughs> oh, totally. Um Yeah, that's totally my my vote these days. It's like uh-huh. Totally with you. Yeah, it's true, though. There might be a certain amount of that, like, adding legitimacy to it. But it, you know, it, um, I know that, I mean, in in the classical worlds that I've been involved in, and um, sort of my first experience with fiddle in my life has been, was was coming from uh, a, a fiddle group, a kid's fiddle group where it was all written out. And that, um, that particular group has a, has a very distinct kind of sound and approach to fiddle tunes of totally different styles. Mm -hmm. Um, and they all kind of end up melding into the, the way that the group plays, which is fair. If you're, if you're a group that is performing and you have to kind of all play the same way. And, um, yeah, but it, it is interesting that, that, I think that like there might be a desire to kind of tap your toe into fiddle music a little. Like my my parents are always like, oh, if there's just a, a, a tune on a page that I can read, it's kind of fun. I can just do this a little, and you know, I don't have to worry about it the same way. Mm-hmm. Whereas like listening to recordings enough that you can discern the real language of how it's being said is like kind of a a, a much longer term pursuit and everything and i think like it's the only as far as i can tell it's kind of the only way to to really get into it and i say this as a person who probably writes out more fiddle-based music than just about anyone i know like i do that a lot but it i do it for reference for myself usually Mm -hmm. you know i have i have in the past like put out books of tunes and things like that but i think it's it's um yeah it's pretty hard to it's pretty hard to convey anything. Uh, yeah. And, you know, yeah, like I was saying, and like you were saying, I think that there's something to be said for like the way that it's been done. Uh, and even if, if doing it the way it's been done is not in itself a good enough reason, I think that the styles have evolved to be a certain way and have certain etiquettes and have certain uh, things because that's how they were taught in the past because like something taught through an oral tradition is a lot less likely to have like definitive bowings and it's a lot less likely to be a little you know stiff on definitive like endings and you know just nothing is quite as cut in stone um because it's sort of like transmitted by the ear and 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 you can really like get kind of a sense of a a character of a tune you know, a lot differently than if it's just written down. So totally. I, mean, I yeah. 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 Are, are you familiar with, with Kenji Bunch's work at all? No, he, um, he's, he's a really fantastic violist. Um, he okay. went to Juilliard for viola and comp. And um, then like, if I'm remembering the story right, and if I'm not, I'm sorry, Kenji. But um, what I remember of the story <laughs> is that he, like, 
he didn't really have a whole lot to do after he graduated. And then he saw an ad for a bluegrass band that was looking for a fiddler. <laughs> and he, he was oh, like, cool. I have nothing better to do. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And he just told the band, like, I've never fiddled before and, but I'll learn and I'll figure it out. And that's what he did for like the next 20 years. And so his, um, his compositions really walk this line of like Hmm. having like a really authentic Americana, like fiddling groove to them. But then like he, he's figured out a way to notate it really, really well. Um, yeah. And I mean, like he even like one of his tunes that I, I play a lot, um, um, the, the three G's, but it has this really cool chop groove in the, in the beginning. And, um, and it's in like dead man's tuning. So it's like, it's super, super cool on viola, Mm. um, with that really low G in there. But, um, but he, like he posted, a bunch of like tutorials on how to sound more authentic with that piece. So oh, cool. I'm wondering if that kind of like mixed media approach is going to be right. like more the gold standard um, right. or like just a standard to expect if you have a composer that's kind of walking this genre line. Totally. I like that actually. I think that's that um, feels like a really good approach. Yeah. Because you're right. That's like the, if you're going to sell that sheet music that's like selling a part of it it's like selling um building blocks without any instructions or something yeah as a, as a thing that you're assembling yeah well and like with with that piece specifically like when you when you buy the score it comes with the cd of him playing through it right. so like Sweet. yeah and like i just i think his approach with how he releases that music and how he like the the tools that he provides to a company that 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 is really a better way with with the tools that we have available right now on on how to do it um yeah but you should you should check his stuff out i feel like it would it would be very cool his um his unleashed album um it's like all of the solo viola tunes that he's written and like he has some like crazy cross tunings and it's just like it's very jammy (laughs) um yeah it's it's super cool his stuff is awesome yeah um yeah yeah um but yeah i i don't know i those are just things that i've been thinking a lot about and i appreciate you exploring all of that with me um yeah yeah always find that interesting for sure yeah. For sure. Um, if people want to uh, keep tabs on what you're up to and different projects that you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, um, I mean, I have Instagram, <laughs> which is uh, at Ben Plotnik Music, or you know, or or, uh, or my website, benplotnik.com. Those are probably the easiest ways. Yeah. Uh, I you know I play in band called the fretless the fretless.com we have uh an array of tour dates coming up and festivals and and stuff a pretty busy fall and have uh my other band oliver the crow which is a duo with my wife we talked about a little um that's my you know we'll we'll have some music coming out in the coming year anywhere you listen to music probably well the coming year we'll see uh <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I, I guess my website's probably the easiest way. There's a whole cool. bunch of whole bunch of projects on the on the go and stuff. So we'll yeah, I'll I'll include all those links in in the show notes. But thanks for doing this. This was a lot of, of fun. Course. Thank you. Yeah, my yeah. pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Dismantling Dissonance. Hit that subscribe button and leave us a five-star rating and review on your listening platform of choice. Check out the show notes for links to connect on social media as well. We'll see you next week.